How is everyone doing? We are back with another episode of Avery After Dark. I'm your host, Avery Ross, and I want to wish everyone a happy August. I want to start off this episode by saying thank you so much for your support and your kind reviews and kind ratings. I I'm doing this all on my own right now. Right now, Avery After Dark is a one-woman show, so I do all the researching, writing, filming, editing on my own. So when I get the positive feedback from you all, it means the world to me. So thank you. For today's episode, we have a disturbing unsolved case that has stuck with me since I heard about it years ago. It's the disappearance of Jennifer Kessie, a beautiful and quick-witted 24-year-old who disappeared from her Orlando condo in 2006 and has never been seen or heard from again. We have a lot to get into in this case, and the details surrounding Jennifer's disappearance are not only heartbreaking, but the little evidence that was found after she went missing only led to more frustration and questions. Let's get to know Jennifer a bit. She was born May 20th, 1981. She graduated from Vivian Gaither High School in Tampa, Florida, and attended the University of Central Florida in Orlando. So she was a Florida girl through and through. She graduated with a degree in finance in 2003 and put that degree to good use as she took a job as a finance manager at Central Florida Investments Timeshare Company. She was working her way up in the company quickly and had a great reputation for being diligent and a hard worker. In 2006, she had recently purchased a new condo for herself in Orlando. It was at the Mosaic at the Millennia, a nice complex that was undergoing a lot of renovations and construction at the time. The entire complex was being flipped from apartments to nicer condos. So for 24 years old, bought her own place, that's pretty impressive for that age. She was obviously a very intelligent and driven woman. And she also had a boyfriend, Robert, Rob, Allen. And the weekend before her disappearance, she had gone on a four-day trip with Rob to the U.S. Virgin Islands. The two reportedly had a really nice time, and when they returned back to the U.S. that Sunday, January 22nd, Jennifer spent the night at her boyfriend's house. Rob lived in Fort Lauderdale, so she then drove straight to work from his place on Monday, January 23rd, 2006. That Monday was very typical for her. She stayed at work until about 6 p.m. At 6.15, she chatted with her dad, Drew, on the phone on her way home and told her dad how her trip went. Everything seemed to be really normal for Jennifer, and her dad said that she seemed to be in good spirits. Jennifer was heading back to her condo for the first time since leaving for her vacation. Later that evening, Jennifer talked to her boyfriend at 10 p.m., and the two reportedly had a bit of an argument. As I mentioned, they were doing long distance at the time. And for anyone who has done long distance, you know, it can get hard. As I mentioned, Rob lived in Fort Lauderdale, which was three hours from where Jennifer lived. And Rob said that she was a bit emotional on the phone, but they said their goodnights to each other. And unknowingly, Rob would be the last person to talk to Jennifer. The next morning, when Jennifer didn't show up for work, the CFO and her coworkers were concerned as Jennifer didn't just not show up for work. Around 11 a.m., they called Jennifer's family and asked if she's sick or if something happened. 
Her dad, Drew, and her mother, Joyce, immediately knew something was up when they got the call. They immediately start calling Jennifer. No answer. They text her. No response. They're emailing her. No response. Joyce, Jennifer's mother, said that she intuitively sensed that something had happened. And you know what they say about mother's intuition. They begin calling local hospitals, but no sign of Jennifer. The next obvious person to touch base with would be Rob, and they talked to him, and he was also concerned, as the two of them were in a habit of texting or phoning each other before work. And that morning, his call went straight to Jennifer's voicemail. He said that he did think it was strange, but Jennifer mentioned to him that she had a meeting that morning, so he assumed maybe she was wrapped up in that. Her parents then call the manager at the condo complex and ask him to check in on her. So he goes, knocks, no response, and then enters her condo with a spare key and reports that Jennifer wasn't inside and her car was gone, but other than that, everything looked fine inside the apartment. No signs of a struggle or any kind of accident. So at this point, Drew and Joyce and Jennifer's brother, who lived two hours away in Tampa, get in their car, and drive straight to Jennifer's condo. When they get there, as the manager described, nothing seemed amiss. It looked like Jennifer had been there the evening before and that morning. She had a couple of work outfits laid out on the bed, the shower was still wet, towel was still damp, makeup on the counter. It appeared that Jennifer had woken up and got ready for the day as usual. As the manager noted, Jennifer's car was not in the parking lot, and her belongings such as her phone, iPod, keys, purse, and work briefcase weren't in her condo. So it looked like something had happened from the time she was leaving her condo to getting to her car. The Cassie family then alerts police. But police initially don't really take it seriously. They say, well, there's no signs of foul play here, and the first detective that arrived on the scene didn't even take notes. But the family begins a full-on search, and eventually another detective hops on the case, and the search was on for her. Jennifer's friends and family really rallied behind her, and the Kessies were doing TV interviews, radio, passing out missing photos of Jennifer around town, really doing anything and everything in their power to find her. Two days after Jennifer's disappearance, Thursday, January 26, at around 8 a.m., police get a call from someone who thinks they saw Jennifer's car. It had been plastered all over the news, and this person said that they knew she was missing and believed that her car may be outside their apartment complex. And this person was right. It was her car. Her black 2004 Chevy Malibu was found in a visitor space at that apartment building, which was about a mile away from her condo. Police search the car and find valuables inside, such as a DVD player. So they really doubt that this was some kind of robbery and start thinking that something much more sinister happened. You gotta keep in mind that this was 2006, so now if you come across a DVD player, you'd probably be like, what is this? But this is a hot item at that time. So it didn't make sense for this person, why not take the DVD player? It really gave police the idea that this person really wanted to just dump this car and get out of there. There was very little evidence found inside the car other than one fingerprint and a bit of mud on the car, which could have been there before. 
or connected to her disappearance. Police didn't really know. They found the driver's seat was sat pretty far back. They believe farther than Jennifer would have been able to even reach the pedals. And the fuel level in her car was consistent with her usual routine. So police believe that not only was this an attempt to hide and get rid of the car, but also that the vehicle had probably been wiped down. So police don't have much to go on with her car, but notice that this apartment complex has security cameras, and they are eager to get a look at the footage. This could tell them who dropped Jennifer's car off, and they believed that this would be their big break in this case. They examine the footage and find that the car was dropped off at noon the day Jennifer disappeared. The footage is blurry and grainy, but one angle of the footage shows the mysterious person driving Jennifer's car up into the visitor's spot, backing out to straighten himself in there, waits inside the car for 32 seconds, then gets out and walks out of the frame in the direction of Jennifer's complex. The next angle of the surveillance footage shows the fence line along the apartment complex. And this was the footage that police were really eager and hopeful would show the person's face and they could ID the suspect. But every frame of the surveillance footage, the face of the phantom figure is obscured by the fence posts. Every single frame, this person's face is perfectly aligned with the fence. This surveillance camera was from 2006 and was the kind that took a photo every three seconds. And every time, the face is completely blocked. If it was one split second earlier or later, this person's face could be seen and probably identified. It really is so disappointing. No one thought this person looked familiar from what they could see of the person's gait, their clothing. The FBI was called in to examine the footage and could only say that this mysterious person was probably from 5'3 to 5'5, and that was it. They couldn't even determine whether it was a male or female. NASA, yes, that NASA, was brought in to enhance and examine the footage, and even they couldn't say definitively. The footage of this phantom person is haunting. To some, it looks like a man. To others, it looks like a woman. It seems like everybody has a different theory of who this person is. Some say the person is dressed in a chef or cook's outfit. Some say the person is dressed in a construction handyman type of outfit. To me, I feel it looks like a shorter man dressed in a construction type outfit. So there's one person on this surveillance footage, but this invited the question in, was there more than one person involved? Those who knew Jennifer personally knew that she was the kind of person who would have put up a fight. And to get away with this, police do believe and have told the media that they think that more than one person was involved in her abduction. And now just a quick word from today's sponsors. So I know all you true crime detective minds ask, Avery... What about the boyfriend? And yes, as done in most cases, Jennifer's relationship and love life was examined by police. And Rob was questioned thoroughly, but he had an airtight alibi. He was in Fort Lauderdale at the time of her disappearance, which is about 200 miles away. Police also check Rob's phone records and evidence of his whereabouts that day. 
and they really don't believe he had anything to do with Jennifer's disappearance. Police could never find any kind of motive for Rob to do this either, and Jennifer's own family has also said that Rob has been extremely cooperative. He's given DNA samples multiple times, he's been polygraphed numerous times, and they don't believe he had anything to do with it. In fact, Jennifer's dad said that he wished the police would have taken more time to look at other suspects, as they just spent a lot of time interviewing Rob. When police found Jennifer's car, they had Rob there, and they were really trying to gauge his reaction and opening up the car, looking through it, looking through the trunk. They were hoping that they would get some sort of reaction from Rob if he was involved, and he really didn't have any sort of reaction other than just doing anything he can to help He just seemed devastated and heartbroken. And from the interviews that I've seen with Rob, he seems like a nice guy. Someone else police look at is an ex-boyfriend of Jennifer's who apparently wasn't too happy that Jennifer was in this new relationship with Rob. Prior to her disappearance, he was reportedly out drinking one night and was very jealous that he was not the one that was with Jennifer anymore. Police did interview this ex-boyfriend and don't feel that he was involved, but some people feel that he does need to be looked at more. Jennifer's mom said there was also a married co-worker at Jennifer's real estate company that was reportedly making advances towards her. Jennifer apparently told this man that she was not interested and would never date a married man. Strangely, this man didn't show up until noon the day that Jennifer went missing. He blamed this on getting a traffic ticket, but this was never confirmed. The following day, when this man was talking to a co-worker named Adam about Jennifer's disappearance, he reportedly commented, quote, she's likely eaten up by alligators already. This was obviously incredibly suspicious and an awful thing to say. I think you could read this comment one of two ways. One, he's bitter that Jennifer had rejected him and was just being a total dirtbag. Or there was some kind of involvement. Either way, this guy sounds like not a great person. But many people are the most suspicious of the handymen and construction workers at Jennifer's condo complex. As I mentioned at the complex called The Mosaic, it was undergoing a lot of construction and renovations at the time of her disappearance. So this meant that there were a lot of construction workers and handymen around the complex at any given time almost every day. Jennifer's condo itself had been renovated and worked on in the months leading up to her disappearance, and she supposedly had been in a fight with two of the workers painting in her apartment in the weeks before. She also reportedly told friends and family that some of these workers were harassing her. She said she felt uneasy around some of them. They would reportedly catcall her, and she just got a very weird feeling around some of them. Woman to woman, I feel incredibly sympathetic for Jennifer in this sense. I believe many women know the feeling of being watched or looked at in a way that you don't like. But to have these kinds of people working right outside your door and inside your home, inside your bedroom where you sleep, it's sad that anyone is put in the situation of feeling uncomfortable inside your own home. But here we are. 
keep in mind that these men had keys and could get into any of these condos at any time. Jennifer's mom wonders if someone, one of these workers, was stalking Jennifer, watching her comings and goings, and she didn't even know. Another frustrating turn in this was that when police try to interview some of the men that would have been working at the complex around the time of her disappearance, they find that many of these men don't speak English and are undocumented, and many scattered after Jennifer went missing. So police don't even have any names to go off of, and the few workers they could interview weren't saying a word. And that is a huge problem when people are in a country undocumented and illegally. When there is a crime like this, police are chasing ghosts. Multiple female condo residents were interviewed in the years following, and they stated that they too felt extremely uneasy and harassed by those workers at the complex. The women reportedly complained to management about feeling like someone was in their home while they were gone, meaning they would find their drawers rifled through. One of these women said she came home to find that someone had gone through her underwear drawer. The women knew that these workers had keys to each and every condo, and they stated that they believed that one or more of those men was involved in Jennifer's disappearance and said that some of these men were just very shady. At this point, the writing is on the wall, These men were in these women's apartments and homes while they were not there. And these women went to the management. Management pretty much said, we're sorry, but there's not really anything that we can do. You have women coming to you afraid, saying, hey, one of your employees has been in my underwear drawer while I'm not home. Can you do something about it? In the best that he had was, sorry, disgusting. In the years following Jennifer's disappearance, the case went cold. They had thousands of leads, but none of them were leading to Jennifer. In 2009, Detective Wright took a fresh look at the case. One of the people he interviewed was a former housekeeper at Jennifer's complex. Strangely, this woman hadn't been questioned in 2006. And when he showed her a photo of the surveillance footage, she reportedly looked at the photo and said, that looks like Chino. The housekeeper said the phantom figure had the same walk, clothing, and hairstyle as a man from the condo complex named Chino. Chino used to live in another building at Jennifer's complex and was a former maintenance worker there. In fact, Chino had done work inside Jennifer's condo just one week before she disappeared. Detective Wright looked into Chino and put the name into the leads tracking system, and a tip popped up from the first week in the investigation. The tip was anonymous, but suggested that Chino may be involved in Jennifer's disappearance. It's unknown if police looked into this in 2006, but it wouldn't have been strange if it wasn't investigated, as they have had many people come forward saying, hey, I called in with a tip, or hey, I called in with information, and I never got a call back. Detectives tracked Chico down and found he was serving time in a Florida prison for statutory rape of a teenage girl, a crime that he committed two years after Jennifer's disappearance. 
And now just another quick word from today's sponsors. So Chino was interviewed by detectives and he admitted to working on Jennifer's condo. He admitted to knowing Jennifer, but was given a lie detector test in past, which doesn't mean much in my eyes. Polygraphs shouldn't rule anyone out. One of the former female residents, a woman named Ashley, stated that nine months after Jennifer's disappearance, Chino up and moved out of the condo complex in the middle of the night. It was then she started to become suspicious of him. Jennifer's dad, Drew, to this day, believes that Jennifer was trafficked. There is a large network of sex trafficking in that area in Florida, and he believes that that is the most probable explanation as to what happened to his daughter. In 2016, it had been 10 years since Jennifer went missing, and she was declared dead in the state of Florida. But Jennifer's parents still believe she is alive and still work every day to try and find Jennifer. Their interviews are crushing when you hear the love and heartbreak that they feel for Jennifer. At this point, the Kessies don't believe police are doing much to search for Jennifer anymore. It's been so many years, but they have stayed diligent in their search for her. Frustratingly, there's been thousands of leads in the case, but nothing concrete has ever been found, and Jennifer Kessie's case remains unsolved. The Kessies do want Chino to be interviewed further, and when they have attempted to speak with him, he just states that he is innocent. Her missing posters are still seen all around town in Orlando to this day, and it's an extremely disturbing case. The Kessie's private detective named Michael Toretta thinks one or more of those workers abducted Jennifer on January 24th, 2006, and I agree with his theory. To me, there are so many similarities between Jennifer's story and Jody Husentrout's disappearance. I covered that a few episodes back, but they were both abducted walking to their cars on the way to work. The difference was in Jody's case, Neighbors did hear a scream. I just am so confused with Jennifer's case. How did no one hear anything? How did no one see her, hear a scream, a struggle, a car horn? I mean, this was in broad daylight. That part has always been very perplexing to me. But both of those cases are unsolved to this day. And I believe, like Jody's, the person that did this knew Jennifer Kessie's routine. I don't believe it was random. It's glaringly suspicious, the timing of Jennifer's disappearance. This wasn't any regular day. Jennifer went missing right after getting home from being out of town for five days. The person or persons who abducted Jennifer knew when she was gone and knew when she was home. That kind of access would most likely come from someone who was at the condo complex frequently which makes me believe it was one of the workers there, one or more of them. What really convinced me is the multiple people feeling uneasy and creeped out by these workers and the numerous people being suspicious and the one IDing Chino as the man in the surveillance footage. Also, I look at the fact that this did happen in broad daylight, and that makes me believe that this was someone or more than one person who were familiar with the area familiar with the complex, familiar with Jen and her car. That surveillance footage is infuriating, and the fact that these workers scattered after her disappearance is sickening. 
But either way, someone knows something somewhere. It's also baffling to me that no one has found anything of Jennifer's in all these years. Not a cell phone, not a item of clothing, nothing. How does that happen? I will say one thing about technology today. Back then, there were no surveillance cameras at Jennifer's condo. It's 2006, but today there are cameras everywhere, which is a huge benefit to us today. I don't believe that these scumbags could have gotten away with this today. There are stoplight cameras, cell phone GPS tracking, surveillance footage is everywhere. I so feel for the Kessie family. I can't imagine their pain and what they've gone through, but I do admire their resilience to find their daughter. They drive what they call the Genmobile, which has all of Jennifer's information posted on the exterior to keep her on the forefront of people's minds. As I do with all of these cases, I hope that one day it's solved for Jennifer, for her family, and the way that that happens is continuing to talk about her. Jennifer's case always struck a chord with me because you see a bit of yourself and other people. I think we have all gotten up, gotten ready to leave for the day, and innocently walked out our door and hopped in our car. Jennifer's condo was a nice place to live, supposedly safe. She didn't invite any of this into her life. She was just trying to go about her day. I don't like people who think they can get away with it. I don't like bullies, people that pick on people who are vulnerable. Maybe that's why I feel so passionately about these kinds of cases. Like I said, someone knows something. If you enjoy this podcast, give it a good rating, a nice review, and feel free to share this podcast and Avery After Dark with your friends and family, anybody that likes true crime, mysteries, hauntings. Follow along with Avery After Dark for all the latest. I am linking all those below. I hope you all have a great week. Stay safe and look after each other. I'll see you next episode.